This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Income inequality is growing here in Ontario. A new report by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives entitled Losing Ground Analyzed Income Data for Families with Children between 2000 and 2015 and found that families at the bottom of the economic scale are suffering losses while richer families are getting richer. The bottom half saw its share of earnings fall to 19% of total labor market income, down three percentage points, while the top half increased its share of the pie by three percentage points, earning 81% of the total income pie. And Ontario is apparently doing worse on this front than the rest of Canada. By the way, the richest 10% of families earn 190% of the average Ontario family's earnings. So, of course, we want to hear from you. Uh, Have you gained ground or lost ground in the last five years or so? And what do you think of this? Is, Is this something that we have to remedy? And what is the right way to remedy this? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Right now, let's go to study author Sheila Block with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you for coming on to talk about this. So uh, give us a little detail of what you found, please. What we really found is that there are two different labor markets in Ontario. For families in the top half of the income distribution, they received an increasing reward for their work. But it's really a totally different story for families in the bottom half with their real wages declining. And that's to a large extent a result of those big changes that have happened um, in the labor market over those 15 years. We've seen an increase in low-wage work, a loss of those well-paying manufacturing jobs, and an increase in precarious work. And all of those factors have been really a big contributor to the polarization that we saw in the report. Okay, so you have a figure in there saying that the poorest 10% of families saw their average real work income drop by over $1,500, and that's a drop of uh, 42%. So where did that drop come from? Are they getting paid less for the work they do? Does it have to do with government transfers? What what caused it? So that uh, result that you're talking about is only... um, is only focused on on their labor market income, so what they got from work. And we have to remember that that bottom 10% of families really relies more on transfers, on social assistance, or uh, those kinds of uh, sources of income. So while that's a big percentage drop, that is that $1,500 is quite small. What we found throughout and up to the the fifth percentile, so the bottom 50% of families, was all of those families 
saw a drop in their earnings. It wasn't just um, um, isolated into those lowest income uh, lowest income families. So just but just uh, getting back to that was uh, have there been drops in in uh, social assistance payments? I mean, if if their money comes from transfers, so what dropped there? So that was focusing solely on their labor market earnings. And what we found was that social assistance and those other transfers really played a crucial, crucial role in making sure that those families' uh, incomes didn't fall as far as they did. And so what the focus is, is that saying income in the labor market really was problematic for the bottom half of families. And what they needed is they needed that help from government to keep them from falling that far behind. And I think our focus is looking at it and saying, what changes need to happen in the labor market so that government doesn't have to kind of come in after the fact and clean up that problem, but... but to are reduce- all these, sorry, are so all these, all these people you studied are working? So what we're looking at is we are looking at people with labor market income with kids under the age of 18. So we really try to focus on in on that group of, of people who are raising their kids. Um, and we looked at their labor market earnings. So we looked at people who were working. Okay. Uh, so you looked at the labor market. Now, what, when you talk about the bottom uh, 50%, does that include uh, people that we would consider middle class? Yeah, because I think we consider middle class kind of people in the fifth decile and and people in that middle, in that mid-range, saw their average real earnings drop by 1%. Okay, so, so that's it was bigger drops lower in the income distribution and then eased out in in the middle and then we started to see that rise when we moved up to the top half of families. Okay, and again, what's been happening out in the world uh, to cause that? That is it the type of jobs that people who earn more have are they're getting raises? Yeah, so we're we're really seeing this kind of polarization in the labor market where um, people who are uh, professionals involved in finance are seeing those increasing rewards for their work, while um, some of those jobs that provided middle-class incomes or really supported lower-income lower people to, to have a living wage, to be able to buy a house, do those kinds of things. We've seen a deterioration both in working conditions and a move out of jobs from areas like manufacturing into the service sector, where it's really a lot harder to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about uh, benefits? Uh, does that play in there? Because some of those, uh, I guess, unionized jobs would have more benefits. Absolutely. So we know that um, the service sector jobs are less likely to, have, to be unionized, they're less likely to have benefits, and they're much less likely to be paying a living wage. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do people do? Did you study at all? I mean, we always hear and, and encounter people who have more than one job to make ends meet. So we know from other research that a lot of people have to kind of pull together a number of part-time jobs to try and, to try and make ends meet. And that has a, a really hard, difficult impact on families because if you're trying to make childcare arrangements, if you're trying to spend time even to be active in your community, it's really hard to do that when you're piecing together those part-time jobs, might not have advance notice of your schedule, 
um, it really makes life a lot tougher, and it makes it a lot tougher to raise kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there a move to more part-time jobs? So what we've seen is we've seen that there is more precarious work, that there's that people are, are working part-time, they're working more precariously, they're more likely to be working on contract, um, on a temporary basis. So that's a, that's a shift that we've seen in the labor market. Mm-hmm, but that's a shift that affects professional people as well. Absolutely. So it affects professionals and it, and it affects people uh, in the bottom half of the income spectrum. But ha- it has a differential impact depending on, on where you're at in the income spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like what? So if you're if you're low income and you're trying to piece together a bunch of different uh, jobs and you're working for a temporary agency, there can be a different impact on your income than if you're a high income professional who's who's kind of moving from one contract to another. So when we see these overall changes in the labor market, um, then we want to take a look at the legislation that that sets the ground rules and say. Does this legislation that in some cases was drafted 50 years ago actually address the issues that, we're, uh, that, that people are facing now in the labor market? And how does it need to be modernized to catch up with all the changes that have occurred? And what legislation do you believe has to change? So um, there's, ch- there's legislation called the Employment Standards Act, which sets the rules for all workers. And there are proposed changes in front of the legislature uh, on that act that look at things like giving people more advanced notice of, of shift schedules, um, that look at um, requiring that if a part-time worker or a temporary worker is working side-by-side with a full-time worker, they should be receiving the same amount of pay. The, le- the proposed legislation would also make some changes to the Labor Relations Act, and that's the rules around unionization. And it's about, you know, giving better access to people who want to join a union, making it a little bit easier for them to do so, because it's really tough to do so, particularly in those low-paid service sector jobs where people really need some more representation. Okay, uh, I want to give the numbers out again, and I want to get into, uh, you're talking about the proposed labor changes proposed by the government, and I also want to get into the whole issue of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So first, let me give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from our listeners on what they think of this proposal. Also, again, have you gained ground or lost ground in the last five years? And what do you think the cause of what happened to you or to your loved ones economically is? The numbers to call 416 360 0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. I'm on the line with Sheila Block. We're talking about the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternative Study entitled Losing Ground and how the people at the bottom of the income scale are losing ground. Inequality, income inequality is growing. And right now I I, want to get into this whole question of the $15 minimum wage. Uh, The Centre for Policy Alternatives believes it's a good thing. Uh, The business community has raised a lot of objections, I believe not so much uh, to the idea as a whole, but just to the speed. They're saying that it is really going to be problematic to raise the minimum wage over two years, which is what 
the government is proposing. Yesterday, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce came out with a report that said 185,000 jobs would be lost if uh, the increase is implemented that way. Let's have a listen. One of three things will happen. One, costs for everyday products will go up. So things that you and I buy every day, like a cup of coffee or a burger, that price is going to go up for sure. Number two, businesses are going to have fewer, less flexibility to hire. So you're going to see people, in many cases, let go or have few hours. Or three, some businesses are not going to be able to accommodate this change and they're going to have to shut down completely. So if you're going to have these new costs for businesses, what are the offsets that you're going to equip businesses with? Are you going to reduce the small business tax rate, the corporate tax rate? How are you going to help employers transition into this new reality? Okay. Uh, So first of all, Sheila, how do you react to that and and that uh, very dire prediction of a lot of jobs lost because of this plan? Well, there are really a lot of questions about that report that can't be answered because they hadn't yet released detailed results or released their methodology. But what we do know is in the last 20 years of peer-reviewed academic economic research, it shows us that a minimum wage increase doesn't have that kind of a dire impact that's being predicted. And what we do know is traditionally when these kinds of increases in minimum wage have been proposed, um, we get we get these kinds of studies. The Fraser Institute did one for BC. We had a similar one from the CFIB for Alberta. And what we found in the experience is that these fears are not borne out. Well, uh, and again, what they're saying is not that they object to the increase. They're just saying, uh, why don't we do it over five years instead of over two years? Yes, that's that's correct, and there, uh, but what we've also seen is in British Columbia, we saw a similar percentage increase of the minimum wage over a similar or perhaps a little bit shorter of a time period, and again, we didn't see those dire impacts. And I think what we have to also ask is for these families uh, who are raising kids, do we really expect them to have to wait those five years to get somewhere close to a, a living wage? And, and again, this study um, really looked at, you know, kind of part of the equation. It, there's, there's real positive impacts that result from an increase in minimum wage. You increase the incomes of low-wage workers. They have something called a, large, a higher marginal propensity to consume, which means they're more likely to spend those dollars in the local economy. That money circulates around higher-income earners more likely to put some more of that money into savings or maybe spend it abroad. So what we really see is there are big potential positive impacts in the experience in B.C., in Alberta, and in a number of U.S. jurisdictions where they've increased the minimum wage, is that it doesn't have those dire consequences that businesses fear. Okay, uh, let's uh, uh, take a call from Charlene in Toronto. Hello, Charlene. Hi. Hi. Um, you're talking about families um, with economic difficulty. What, what about also single people? Like, I am a single person, and I've been looking for work for about a year, and I cannot find anything. I mean, I am skilled in working, doing office work, and they've made it very, very difficult to find anything. When I started out, you did not need college or university to get one of these jobs. You needed the skills, like you could type or whatever, whatever. 
uh, do filing, uh, create documents, whatever you're supposed to do. But now, oh, well, we need people who have um, a certificate in administrative assistance from a college or a BA in, in, in something else. You don't need college. You don't need a university to sit and answer to somebody's phone, file, work on documents, no computer software programs. I mean, you have to have taken classes, and I've spent a lot of time in classes taking you know, learning all these things, but it, and it's impossible. And also, I am a Zoomer, so it's harder as well. That that for sure, with the age thing is is uh, really a, a huge factor. Uh, Sheila, do you have any comment? And I'm uh, sorry to hear for your difficulty, Charlene. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that single people are really um, struggling as well. Yeah. The reason that we focused on families raising kids is that we we needed to kind of get something consistent to measure over time, right? So because the, the kind of the population is aging and there's a shift in the composition, we really wanted to isolate factors, and that's why we had to pick one family type. But absolutely, single people, and in particular single women, um, really face challenges in the labor market and really face higher poverty rates. So I, I, I wish you the best, and I hope your your job search works out soon. Thanks, Charlene, for your call. Uh, we have time for one more. Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Not bad. Um, I understand that a lot of the problems that some businesses are going to have with the uh, higher minimum wage, but I think there should be a two-tier minimum wage. The minimum wage maybe could stay where it is, but part-time minimum wage should be $2 higher an hour. Reason? The full-timers have some benefits. The, the ones on part-time don't have any benefits. So they, if they did that and said, well, you got to pay $2 minimum more for a part-timer that has less than 35 hours, that would give these people a chance to maybe have some benefits and have an extra dollar or two that only get five and six to 20 hours a week. That's, I think it would encourage more full-time jobs and give people a chance to to put some money in the bank and pay their bills because it's, it's not really right that they, they hire 15 part-timers so they don't have to pay them benefits. Absolutely. Bob, but that's an interesting suggestion. Thanks for your call. Um, that's all the time we have for this segment. Uh, Sheila, very quickly, is there something you'd like to leave us with? I really think that we need government to step in and to level out the playing field and just give those lower-income families a chance to make a decent living and support their kids. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, thank you very much, Sheila, from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.